0: Andy Armstrong, I was the second unit director, directing the action units in New York on the original Highlander and you're listening to Highlander Report.
1: Welcome to Highlander Rewatched, where each and every week we take a new look at the Highlander universe. My name's Eamon. This is Kyle. And this is Keith. And this week we have a very special guest who worked on the original Highlander movie. He's a director, an action director, stunt coordinator, stuntman. Uh, We have Andy Armstrong. Andy, welcome.
0: Thank you very much for having me. Welcome to so uh, very nice to be
1: here. Great. So um, I read an interview with you recently, and you you mentioned that your first big break directing complete action sequences was on the original Highlander movie. Um, I was wondering how did you get involved with the original Highlander movie?
0: Yes, I mean that's absolutely correct. The um, I originally came into the business as a stunt man, but then I um, feeling that my specialty was really vehicles. I didn't think that I would make a great living just doing vehicles, you know, you know just doing vehicle stunts so I sort of migrated into production and became an assistant director and had a very lucky career as an assistant director because a lot of breaks just happened for me you know luck, no matter how good or bad anyone is luck plays that you'd fart in it and I'd become a first assistant director very young and had gone around the world doing that on movies and by the time I had been invited onto Highlander it was it was to be an assistant director for Steve Hopkins who was the original second unit director the second unit Dennis, to shoot a lot of the action sequences and so I came on as Steve's first assistant director on the second unit to do some pickups and and some bits left over after they came back from Scotland and then very soon after coming on the movie literally within a few days for some unknown reason I really again you don't know what the reason was Steve left the picture and oddly enough Although he he was a second-unit director, he went on to a very, very successful career as a main-unit director directing movies. He left the picture... And the second unit would have been sort of shut down while they were thinking about what next to do kind of thing. And I'd heard about an English TV director who I'd actually worked with, a guy called John Huff. The sort of legend has it that when there was a need for a second unit on a, on the original Avengers TV series, he sort of marched into the office and said, I'll do it. And if it's no good, I'll pay for it.
1: Huh. Wow.
2: Um, That's a good way to get a job. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I used to think it was sort of quite a ballsy move, but now I think it's quite an insane move. But I, I did actually, as a 28-year-old guy or whatever I was, I marched into the office, the producers, to Peter and Bill's office, and said, I said those words, basically. I, I, I'll take over. Let's not close it. I'll take it over. And if it's no good, I'll pay you for whatever it's cost the stuff I've shot. Obviously, I had no way on planet Earth of pain. <laughs> 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 so had I... Uh, Had the material I shot not been any good, I'd have had to sort of vanish into the woods somewhere, I don't know. Anyway, That's an
2: incentive to um, nail your shots. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Literally, one day I was the assistant director on the second unit, and the next day I brought in another assistant director to work for me, and I came onto the set as the director of the second unit. It was a sort of interesting dynamic, first of all, because in those days there was a lot of sort of older camera people, and a lot of them were immediately sort of telling me how it was going to go. I had to do something I'm quite well known for now, establishing the situation of who's in charge, and I did that pretty quickly. And, you know, a couple of the older guys were taken back, first of all, but, you know, we went on to shoot some great stuff. And then, so I finished all the stuff up in England, which was the first sequence that I did as a complete sequence was the underground parking lot. They had done a couple of shots in New York, and in the very early days of cable cam, which is a remote control camera that operates on cables. and Nowadays, they're you know they're very high tech that they can go to a predetermined geographical spot. But in those days, it was a little bit hit and miss, and there was a cable cam system put up in. Madison Square Garden for that opening sequence where you see the crowd and then the camera comes in and then it goes to Christoph. And it hadn't worked because the camera had had, had jammed and it hadn't come far enough in towards Christoph for a smooth shot. And it was actually myself and Russell Mulcahy that came up with a solution to it. So I did the second half of the shot in London. And if you watch the movie, the the camera comes over the crowd and it goes in towards Somebody in the crowd, and then you realise it's Christoph. But in between there, there's a camera flash. We just hit it with, you know, as if they were light bulbs going off, like like a uh, flash yeah. And it was uh, that was one of the first little bits that I did with Russell to marry the two parts together. So that the seats that, that when Christoph is sitting there and the close up of him in the stand is actually in London, whereas the beginning of the shot is in New York.
2: That's and amazing.
0: I think that's a little, yeah, it's a little known fact. I I've only just remembered it the other day. It was one of the first things to be shot. The table shot, that didn't work.
2: I can't tell you how many times we've watched the movie, and I've never noticed that little cut. And that's that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah,
0: there's a Peter Holmes who, who edited it who did a fabulous job editing that for the day. I shot the second half. But he married those little bits, those two bits together very, very cleverly. And it's just very subtly done with camera flashes. So that was one of the first things that we did. But then uh, I went on to do the underground parking lot, which was all in England. That was all done in London in one of the, one of the studios, one of the early studios, I think Rotherhide or somewhere near, in Docklands, near near, near Docklands on, on the very east end of London. We built that underground parking lot and put all the cars in there, you know, rented a road. Or, or bought a load of American, load of American cars because we blew some of them up. And then the the guy that he kills, I forget his character name now, in the parking lot, which I think, I guess, is the first killing you see in New York. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah that's, that was Peter Diamond, who was the original stunt coordinator on the movie. He was for the sword work and things so he played that character and there's some very interesting little bits there as well I mean you, which you probably if you've watched the movie a lot of times you probably will, will already know of uh, when I put that sequence together we actually cut around some things that were shot in different order and so there's, there's one scene where I think he does a backflip off, off a car or something, and then he lands, and his glasses are on the. Uh, on the, the you see the mirrored sunglasses on the ground, and then the net, the very next shot that you see Peter, he has them on again. <laughs> <laughs> it always bugged me when I shot it, but, you know, the odd thing is that no one ever mentioned it. It was yeah. very funny. But it was, it was because it was shot out of order, you know, it was something that was... Uh, I'd always planned that shot. to I, I sort of done a little story, you know, the sequence order in my mind, and it obviously didn't get put together like that. Yeah, uh, it's probably better the way it is, but it's 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 become a sort of interesting little uh, faux part that's there in um, forever sort of thing. That was the start of it all. I did that sequence, and then the producers came to me and said, "Look, there's a, there was literally two lines, I think, in the you know one or two lines of the script which says the Kurgan takes Roxanne for a terror drive through New York and." You know, they knew I had a, had a sort of affinity with uh, motor vehicles, so they said, look, you want to do this? You know, what do you think you could do with it? And so I, I sort of went to town with uh, creating that sequence, which has become quite iconic now, you know, it's always one I'm very, very proud of, because it was just nothing. We just made, I just sort of made it up, you know, and, uh, originally it was written you're just going to steal a Ford Bronco, a four-wheel drive. And I said, well, we wouldn't get able to slide it around corners and things so much. And so, you know, I, I decided on the uh, Cadillac, and they, everyone liked it. So we went ahead, and I mean, the amazing thing is I, I, I arranged all of it literally on the telephone. You know, you think of those days that was before the Internet, and I arranged that whole shoot on the telephone with a crew that I had never met. When I flew to New York on my own and met a crew that I'd sort of picked, My recommendation, including a stunt crew, I I knew absolutely nobody on my crew when I first walked there, when I first stepped out of the hotel. And they turned out to be a fantastic group of people. It was just amazing. The whole movie, really, for me, was one of those sort of moments in your life that everyone gets to some stage where sort of all the stars align. Yeah, I had this, you know, fantastic crew. Most of the stunt people were from california i oh, no, uh, we're know that from new york but two were from california a guy called shane dixon who doubled the curve and in the cadillac and one other guy from uh, new york as well and uh, from LA as well who was my sort of key second driver i think because i didn't know so many of the rules and regulations in new york i don't know how half the places that we shot we were agreed to shoot at you know <laughs> when i look back at it i mean I, when you first sort of so I went back and looked at some stuff at Highlander again. I look at that chase. It's actually, you know, it's still work I'm very proud of. And I, I often think, how the hell did I, did I get permission to do that? Maybe I didn't have permission. I don't know.
2: Yeah. <laughs> a little guerrilla <laughs> filmmaking.
0: Yeah, I think it was. I think there was a lot of that. You know, I did get threatened to be arrested a couple of times.
2: Oh, tell us about that. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, in those days, the New York police, they didn't, they, they, well, they're still they're still very rough on to shoot now because it's, uh, even though filming brings a lot of revenue to the city, there's still any of the police that are sort of assigned to a film crew always give you the impression that they drew the short ends of a straw, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, you, you always got these sort of classically grumpy New York cop, you know. When we, when I did the pickups, I'd done a lot of the action, and then I wanted the actors, uh, the two actors, to come out, you know, be with me for the close-up, so I could match the close ups into the, into the action that we'd done. Because we were, it, it was very early days of using the fastest lenses we could use, and a lot of available light. That was the other reason I think that, that I was given it to do, because I'd seen, um, uh, I, I think I'd seen a movie that Walter Hill had done or something, and it was all available, all done with available light. And I... So that was going to be the sort of style I pitched out to Russell as well, that it would be the the car chase would look very unlit, it would look very natural. So consequently, when we were towing the Cadillac with the two actors in it and we had cameras all over the front of it, my idea was that we'd we'd drive around parts of New York and when I saw that it looked good, you know, the background looked good and interesting, I would tell the camera guy to stop and I would jump off and turn all the cameras on. Well, that's a huge, on certain highways in New York, that's a very big no-no, you know. (laughs) Whether whether I knew that was being belligerent or whether I just didn't know that, I don't know, I like to think I just didn't know it, but it's probably the former. But I, you know, a couple of times I stopped the car, stopped the vehicle, got off, and turned all the cameras on. And at one point, and it has a very odd, interesting side story, is that the second time I did it, a very grumpy cop got out of the car that had been, you know, leading us around town. and came over to me and said, if you get off the camera guy again, I'm going to arrest you. So we had a, not really a row, but it was de- there was definitely a, a little, a few sort of angry words between he and I. And while that was going on, I had actually turned on one of the cameras. I'd started turning turn them on because he was saying, you, know, you get back on the camera guy, you can't get off on the road here, and you can't do all that. But I'd already started turning on the cameras. (laughs) While I was arguing with the cop, Clancy, who was waiting there, you know, he didn't even really realise he was on camera, but he was sitting there and that's when he did his little thing where he raised his hands and he started singing New York, New York. (laughs) <laughs> it, was, it was that. While that was going on, I was actually in a sort of uh, nose-to-nose conversation with a, a very uh, aggressive um, New York cop, you know. And I, you know, in, in reality, I probably made the situation worse because I was pretty aggressive at. Well. <laughs> um, but the funny thing is that when we got back and we shot the sequence, that's when Russell, who had done a lot of Queen videos and knew them all very well, he brought them in to see the movie... And it was when they saw that sequence and they saw Clancy just playing around doing New York New York. That's when they decided to do a remake of that song. And they used the chase that I did in the music video. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a funny roundabout story, but it's, a bit, it's very interesting because, yeah. you know, that song goes all over the, the whole sequence. It really adds to it. It makes it, you know, normally you'd have done that as a, that sequence, you know, you'd have done all the post-production sound and put all that in there. It, it works much nicer and it's a cooler sequence to have just a song over it mostly. You know, the rest of it is just a few kind of effects sounds, but the rest of it is just a song and it's, you know, it makes it quite a unique action
2: sequence. That's just so amazing to me that a Queen song originated from a cop giving you a hard time. Like, there's a direct <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. It, it, link it's between a, the two.
0: I'd forgotten that for years and then, it, as I say, when I watched it again, I realized. Uh, you know, I remember the night very well, you know, where very, you know, very grumpy guy and obviously, you know, this sort of uh, aggressive and ambitious young English guy trying to, you know, sort of take over the streets. And it was funny. There was a couple of funny moments on that. And I realised that, you know, youth and ambition, you know, can cause all sorts of interesting scenarios. You know, one of them was either that night or another night that I had the actors with, you know, to come and do the pickups. One of the things I wanted to do was to have a camera on the Cadillac as they drove through between the two trucks. There's a sequence where that he's driving, and it's, it's very like late in the chase, and two trucks are coming at him, and he drives straight at them and goes through a back in the middle that's almost not there. And I had the actors, Plantasy was always fabulous, you know, he was, he was one of those people that just, you know, he and I got on straight away, and it was a, you know, a great sort of partnership, but Roxanne was someone that which happens a lot with sort of actors and actresses that they when they get sent to do something with the the second unit or the action unit it sometimes it's a bit of a feeling that it isn't really important or whatever you know they don't give it all their hundred percent and so then and, and she obviously you know I'm sure she thought oh she's going to you know come come on this unit directed by this young English guy. It's, you know, it's not really it's just to pick up shots or whatever. But I wanted a shot of her being really shocked when he dives through the middle between the two trucks. And we did it once, and her reaction was just, you know, it, was, it just wasn't very large. And so by now I've got to know some people very well. So I went to the two drivers in the trucks, were the, my two Californian drivers because it was really Clancy driving the car at that point. She's next to him, and the two trucks coming at him were my two Californian drivers, who were very, very good. Uh, Greg Barnett was the other one, the second one, Greg. And so I went to them, and I said, look, you know, I'm not getting any reaction, so on this one, leave it really late before you split. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that guy you a who I you to know, I knew quite well by now, I said, look, if it gets scary, just, just close your eyes for a second, but just don't, don't, touch the wheel, just keep it go, you know, keep going dead straight. But I also told the drivers that once they got level, just as they got level with the car, they hit the air horns, they both had really loud exhaust-driven air horns. Oh. And, so, and that was the shot that's in the movie. <laughs> um, the tail end of that shot is that when, when he got back at the start of the run, she got out of the car and slapped me around the face, which was very funny really at the time, but... <laughs> <laughs> She laughed at it afterwards, but at the time, I was not on her Christmas card list
2: for sure. <laughs> That's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, it's
0: you, a very funny,
2: very funny sequence. So you had said that you had come primarily from vehicle stunts. Did you? What was the transition like from vehicle stunts to other types of stunts? Was that easy, or how, how did you make that process happen? I
0: was always interested in, in other stuff, you know. But I, I, my career started as a motorcycle trials and endu- uh, enduro off road rider. You know, I was okay at it. You know, I, I wouldn't have become a rich man doing it, but I was, I was, you know, it was okay. And I started that when I was 14 years old. Now, by the time I got to 19, 18, 19, I, I was very aware I wouldn't make a living doing it, or good living, anyway. And I'd always thought it would be a sort of stepping stone to racing cars, which is what I really wanted to do. It's an odd time in my life as a sort of, late, you know, as a teenager, I was having to have this sort of soul-searching questioning going on of what was I going to do, because as long as I can remember, i always only ever really been interested in vehicles and movies. So it was a time in my life when it was becoming sort of evident to me whether I wanted to admit it or not that I wasn't going to make a great living competing with vehicles. And so it was at that time that my brother came into the business a few years ahead of me and he came in with a similar way with horses because father, our father was a racehorse trainer in England. And that was always a great disappointment because I was more than my brother. I didn't you know, want to be a, a jockey, a steeplechase jockey. So Vic had already come in as a stuntman and was just starting to become a stunt coordinator. And he he did a TV series in the south of France called The Zoo Gang, which had John Mills and Brian Keith and all sorts of people. There was a motorcycle sequence in it where John Mills gets dressed up as a gendarme for a riot squad, you know, I'm actually a CRS officer, but, you know, looking like a gendarme on a BMW motorcycle. And they wanted to do a chase along the Grand Corniche from sort of Monte Carlo down to Nice. And so he called me basically to say, look, you could come out and do this, but you'd have to be out here tonight. It was one of those sort of situations. And so I flew to Nice, and the first time that I rode the motorcycle sort of on screen, as it were, there was a massive lightbulb moment that I realised I could make a lot more money crashing vehicles than I ever could failing to win races on them. So (laughs) (laughs) So that sort of started it and then I was always massively interested in films so all the other sort of elements of action filmmaking I kind of had some of the seeds of it. You know, I... The fire stuff I knew about because I dealt with all the, you know, fire protection technologies in vehicle racing. And by the time I started to stunt coordinate, because I I was an assistant director for until... One of my last movies as an assistant director was Hope and Glory with John Borman. And that was after Highland. I'd gone back to it a little bit after that. And then I then I decided that's all I was going to do now was, um, you know, do action. And so I, um, because I'd done a few movies as an assistant director that had huge crowds and i I devised ways of dealing with huge crowds, it was a funny thing that it sort of that migrated with me when I came to Hollywood and started, you know, to be a stunt coordinator. I was often given movies with huge crowds and because people had seen other things that I'd organized, it sort of it didn't, didn't matter that I'd done those as an, as an assistant director and now these I was doing as a stunt coordinator. And for a while I did a lot of movies with big, big, big crowds. You know, I did start the original Stargate, which we had, you know, 1,400 people, uh, Hoffer with with Danny DeVito and Jack Nicholson I did with 1200 people all battling You know, I, I sort of devised ways of working with that sort of thing and then, and then it was and then sort of life went uh, full circle because I realised I wanted to direct again so um, that's when I um, helped out on a little movie with Danny Glover the actor was directing and I, I went in to do the action for him and the producer and I got on very well so she said to me look you, you want to direct a movie for us and uh, so he gave me a lot of movies to, to read and I basically did didn't like it, even though they all horror films. And uh, I, uh, sort of straight horror movies, I, you know, it's just not my real forte. So I thought about it. And I she said, no, no, if I'm going to do a uh, the movie, it's got to be something I'm passionate about. You know, I'm, I'm just not that passionate about those movies. So they surprisingly, and God knows why, really. They said, well, do you want to bring us something? And I said, yes. Uh, again, there's a huge white lie. I said, yes, I have, <laughs> I have a script. Because I didn't have a script. And it was a, it was for a movie, Moonshine Highway, and I I literally went home and wrote the script in two weeks and submitted it, not thinking anything would come of it. And then because then I went off to Mexico to race in a, in a long vintage car race, uh, the from Guatemala to Texas, and did very well in the race. And after a couple of days, I called back to the guy who was looking after my branch in California, and he said, "Oh, they've been trying to get hold of you. You know, Showtime want to deal with your lawyer. They want to make this movie. You know, that was that was Moonshine Highway." That. Um, that I directed, so it's a, it's it's been a you know strange and, and roundabout career doing lots of different things. But it's funny, you know, after all those years, and, and it was this you know because of these interviews and because of um, thirty year thing of you know anniversary of Parliament, uh, that it caused me to go back and look at the movie again, and I realised wow, it's, it's a it's a really good movie that holds up really well. It's amazing. You know, a lot of a lot of movies from that period really don't hold up very well. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's an odd period. I've got to say, it really does hold up very well, you know. I'm still not sure if I've done any better action
1: stuff since, really. Well, I mean, some of the scenes you talked about are some of the most iconic scenes of Highlander and what really set that movie apart, especially that that opening scene over Madison Square Garden. Like, I think of that as one of the best scenes in action movie history. What what were some of the challenges working on Highlander? Any stick out?
0: No, I mean, it was... um... If anything, it was amazingly sort of instructional and, you know, really wonderful for me, really, the fact that the first guy that I really got to do a big sequence for was was Russell because, you know, Russell Mulcahy is is a director, I think, that doesn't get nearly the credit that he really, that he warrants because he, he was years ahead of his time. You know, there's loads of other directors that pretend that it was their idea, this sort of, this style of going from very wide lenses to very tight lenses and nothing in between. In all reality, it was Russell Mulcahy that invented that look. It came from music videos, but it was a definite look. If you, if you look at the whole of Highlander, there was nothing shot on a sort of mid-range lens. And, and you know, you think a lot of movies in the 70s were all shot on a sort of 35 to a 60, you know, 35 to a 50 really. You know, they're okay, but they just look like old sort of flat images. And he was really the first to do that you know, cut from a 200 mil telephoto lens to a 20 mil, and making these sort of harsh cuts and they were beautiful in the movie and they hold up very well and the still style that people sort of revert to now and as I say a lot of people have taken credit for it but I, I, I really truly believe that it was trustful that kind of invented that look. I mean, I think he was a massively talented filmmaker years ahead of his time. You know, film schools are, are, are always interesting. I've been doing a lot of talks, and you know, that's how my book really originated. I've been do, I, I started doing seminars all over the place, doing um I do after dinner talks for sort of non-film people, but I also do sort of two-day seminars, which are concentrating on the approach to action in movies and how you go about it. And it was really from that that my book came out, and... It's interesting that I just recently taught a, a class for a month at the New York Film Academy. The interesting thing is that it's the same old thing. You know, you'll get people teaching about movies, and they'll you know they'll always they'll always sort of go on about Eisenstein and all sorts of nonsense. But when you when you say, okay, everyone, now tell me the movies that you really loved. Forget about forget about what looks good on a report card, and you know, because you don't really, I, I guarantee you, don't go home and watch. Something by Eisenstein, you know. When you ask them, you know, what movies they really love, Highlander is one of those that comes up. You know, that's iconic. You can't have a more truth than that, really.
2: Definitely. So you you just mentioned your book, which just came out pretty recently, the action movie makers handbook, The Art of Movie Action. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what the book's about?
0: Absolutely. I wrote the book because I started doing seminars mostly for some people. Stunt performers that wanted to become stunt coordinators, designers and action unit directors. I felt that, the, and it's true, that the, a lot of stunt professionals don't want to pass on their little sort of tricks of the trade because they, I think they, I think it's because they they think that they're going to lose jobs out there to these young people, which is a, in my opinion, is an absurd premise because, you know, stunts, like any athletic profession, You're eventually going to be replaced by someone younger, fitter, faster, just generally better, you know. And so I don't think you can stop that, and I don't think you should. I wanted to sort of deliberately go against the grain, so I started these seminars. And then I, with the seminars, I wanted to be able to give the students something at the end that they could, because it's so much information that I I was worried they couldn't retain it all. They'd all take it lots and lots of notes. But the book... That that's how the book started. It was only—it was never going to be as big as it is. But it, once I started writing, you know, I, I would wake up in the night and then, you know, end up with a whole other chapter. And, uh, so it, it sort of developed into a book. So then I made it available for sale, and thinking that I'd only sell, you know, half a dozen copies would get sold somewhere, you know, some lunatic film fan, you know. But um, but in the end, it's sold in ten countries now. Wow! Which is quite bizarre. And I even sent some back with sort of friend of a friend to Iran because they couldn't get it in Iran and, the, and I'd worked with a couple of Iranian stamp people so they wanted copies of it so it's literally it's it, I just got an email from him yesterday saying that it had arrived. So it's, yeah, it's 10 countries around the world that it's sold in now. And I credit Russell with some stuff in there because, as I say, he invigorated me about the the stamp on a movie that a director can do. I think he really put a, a fabulous visual stamp on that picture. It still holds up today, and that's... 30 years on is a tough period to have a movie last. Sometimes 50 years on, when they they suddenly look like vintage Catholics, yes, people start looking at them again. But you could watch Highlander, and I'm sure you know you guys have. You can watch it again now, and it's still a good movie. You know, it's it, it's no different in its feeling that it was when we made it. And I think that's an amazing, staggering, really, because I mean, there's a lot of movies I've done in between then and now wouldn't want to go back and watch. I, you know, if I do, I, I cringe, you know. I think,
2: what was I thinking that night? You know? Well, I, I have a, t- a two-part question for you then. So obviously the action sequences in Highlander are iconic, uh, but you've choreographed a lot of and directed a lot of other iconic action scenes, huge blockbuster movies, uh, which are great. So what are some of your favorites of those? And also, what do you think makes a good action sequence? Like, what's your process for developing the sequence?
0: Yeah. Um, well, it's always tough for me to say which is my favourite because, I mean, oddly enough, although I've made a you know great living doing huge action movies, to a certain extent, I'm not I'm not really an action movie fan. I mean, unfortunately, I wouldn't make like living doing romantic comedies or you know, but But um, there's a few that I love because of their minimalist use of action. I think my overall thought about all that you said there really is that. I think there's a whole breed of action movie now which basically have far too much action in them. And you become numb to it. It's not, it's not anything, you know, because one of the things I teach, and it's, it's in the book, you know, and it's, it's a, one of the first things I teach in the, in the class, is a lot of the movies that I've come on to and had very successful results with have been movies that I've actually taken a lot of action out of because I think action is like erotica, you know, music or what, you know, any heightened sense portion of filmmaking. I think you need only just enough. If you've seen enough, you've actually seen too much. And so I I really work on that principle. But what I do is I do a a graph with a 1 to 10 sort of scale. And so early on in the movie, I think there should be something in the first, usually, 10, 15 pages that is a, perhaps goes to a 7, and then... You can go through that until about the second act of the movie, sort of second act, almost the end of the second act into the third act. It's, it's good to have something else that's a good action sequence, but maybe only a five on that scale. And then at the very end of the movie, you want something that's a ten, that's bigger than you've ever seen on the movie up until then. That sounds incredibly formulaic, but if you lay that graph, over most of the great, successful action movies, it will, to some degree, it will fit. And I think the problem is now, there are a lot of movies that sort of start at a 10, and then they try and go to 11. And, and, and you know, there isn't an 11. It's sort of, they just, it's just stop <laughs> action. I mean, I'm always interested when I'm in a cinema, if there's an action sequence that I feel that is going on too long. I'll look around, and it's interesting that you'll see, that's when you'll see people talking to each other or whatever, which is a good sign that it's going on too long. You should always be wanting a bit more. Movies like Highlander have little bits of action, really, and then some solidifying scene in between it. And I, I think that's one of the reasons it works so well still. You know, it's got all sorts of different action. It works because there's not too much of it. It's not mind, you know, tons of mindless action. I mean, it, you know, if you watch some of the big blockbusters, I I'm, you know, I'm sure some kids and things like them, but I, I think it's storytelling tools. They're they're not very, they're not very good. It's just it's just even if you love the action, it's just mindless. You know, you can only crash and blow up so many cars. <laughs> yep, <laughs> definitely, yeah. it, you know, so many people, it it just becomes relentless. And yeah. I think your cars would moment-
2: be so fast and so furious. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean I, I you know, I'm a car obviously a you know, huge car aficionado and I can't even get through some of those movies. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, when the screeners come out I have, I have to watch them in sort of ten to twenty minute sections because I've got no idea even when I've watched the movie I've got no idea what the hell it's all about, you know. <laughs> right. I mean I, I really don't know what the story's about, what the goal is at the end, you know, it's sort of I think less is more in action movies for sure. Because one of the things I ask in the seminars is I say, okay, what's your favourite action sequence? That's, that's, you know, first of all you say car chase and invariably they'll say bullet. You know, that's a shining example. Bullet is not an action film. It's a thriller. It's a, it's a, it's a thriller with, with 17 minutes in the sort of middle end of a uh, second acting that that's a car chase. That's why it works so well because it's a fantastic action sequence in a movie that doesn't have the rest of that stuff in it in the rest of the movie. It's like, you know, I always liken it to cooking. You know, if you put every spice you've got, in every dish that you have, by the time you got to the dessert, you wouldn't, well, you wouldn't taste it anyway. And it's just a, I, I think that's a, a major issue with a lot of pictures now. It's a very real thing that's too much of a good thing.
2: So, like, the movie making has changed a lot since Highlander was made, especially with the, you know, the role of computers and these kind of action sequences. From your end and your perspective, how has that changed the the creation of these kind of sequences?
0: It's- The apparatus and sort of uh, ability that we have now make certain things much, much easier. But I think what it does cause is when something becomes easier, you have to be your own sort of police check about what is, you know, what you should be doing. You know, I've said to people before, just because you can, on screen, you can blow up the world. That isn't maybe what the story needs, you know. So I think it's harder to police yourself about where you go with, you know, huge action spectacle because it's, you know, now you can, you know, you can have 10 people running over the hill and you can replicate them and make 10,000 people running over the hill. But do you need 10,000 people in the scene? You know, that's the question that I was torn with. When you go back to things like Highlander, and everything was done, you know, before you could replicate anything. Even, you know, taking wires off people that you're elevating or anything was a big deal. Now it's just that, you know, someone can do it on the, the brush stroke on a Mac computer. It's nothing. Right. Um, but in, in those days, it was all really done. Shooting digitally nowadays, you can see everything immediately and see if it works. You know, you can composite things in camera so that if you're doing a scene in two parts, you're going to lay them over each other. You can do that on set in front of you and know immediately, instantly whether it'll work or not. In the days of Highlander, you know, I didn't get my dailies and rushes back until two days later. So you just, you don't know whether anything's gonna work until you've seen it projected. I think to a certain extent, you have to be better planned in those days you have to go off with a a definite sort of shooting list for the day of what, you know, what you know you're going to get. And I'm I'm still very diligent about that sort of stuff now. You know, I like going after a certain number of shots and getting them and only sort of deterring from the list if it's something that I've noticed that's really good that's happening, you know, because it's... Planning, I think, is everything. And it's funny, you know, when we did Highland, because of Russell had established this style... Of very long lenses and very wide lenses and nothing in between. So Jim Crispy, who was my cameraman, I talked to him, and I told him this is the style I wanted to do, so we get fast, long lenses that would work without with available light. In fact, we lit a few little junctions and things where there was a crash or whatever. But when I turned up there, they, on the truck, they had all the mid-range lenses anyway, because the, the rental house had sort of thrown those in. I kept saying to the camera assistant, get rid of them, I don't want them on the truck, because if I have them, you'll use them. And so if you don't have those lenses and you've only got long and you've only got wide, it forces you to design a shot that you can do with only the, only the long or the wide. And so it sort of was a policing method for myself, really. And I've you know, I've tried to do that a lot. The moment you see someone having loads and loads of tools and toys and things on a truck just in case, what, what happens is you end up using them for no really good reason. I think you've got to go with a real plan. And so that's one of one of the things that that movie taught me, you know, to go into a sequence, whether it's an action sequence or whether it's a whole movie, with a definite visual plan of how it would look and feel. And I think that's pretty consistent through the movie. I mean, one of the things that I'm sort of most proud of of the movie is that it's very difficult to tell between things that Russell shot and things that I shot. And that's something I'm very proud of, because it's, we've all seen action movies where, it's very obvious that one whole sequence is done in another style altogether, and it's clearly done by somebody else. That takes me out of a movie. I like to think of a movie like a painting. It's got to be, it's all got to be one style. And I think that's the other thing about Highlander. It, it stands up very well like that. It's, it's got a definite style, definitely. Which at the time, you know, some people didn't like. I remember. It, it's sort of one of those things that got better with time. It's funny because I, I remember my ex-father and all the time went to see the movie and hated it. Thought it was, you know, thought it was dreadful. I mean, I was... <laughs> I thought he was a heathen and he didn't watch it and there was a whole, you know... But anyway, but, you know, the, the style was years ahead of its time. It's funny. I mean, I also, years later, I uh, Russell Mulcahy was the original director on Rambo 3 in Israel and he got fired from it. But the funny thing is, I would have loved to have done the movie with him, the action side of the movie... But, Carolco, who was producing that movie, they, they wanted another second-generated director to come on and do the stuff, because it was someone that had worked with him before, a guy called Peter McDonald. And then, so I, you know, realised, okay, I wasn't going to get to work with Russell Gemsworth's chain, but anyway, after a couple of weeks, the phone rang, and, uh, It was the office in Israel where they were shooting. They wanted me to come out immediately, take over the second unit. And I said, well, you know, what happened to Peter McDonald? And they said, oh, well, he's gone on to the main unit. He has a camera background, so I I presumed that they meant he was going to be the director of photography on the main unit. So I flew to Israel, and the car driver picking me up to take me from Tel Aviv down to the Dead Sea was sort of falling asleep at the wheel. And I, you know, I sort of nudged him a couple of times, and I said, "Okay, you know, and he said, oh, yeah, I'm just tired. Because it's, it's this is my second run to the airport today, and I'm, you know, just out of interest. I, you know, I go, well, uh, I said, who else did you take there? And he said, oh, I, I took the director Russell Mulcahy. He's just flown <laughs> out. I thought, oh, well, this is odd, and so. Um, He's only directed a little bit of the movie, and then, um, Peter McDonald, who I'm not a fan of, uh, <laughs> he sort of manipulated the situation to take over from Russell. Uh, you know, and has, he and I have not ever got on very well, so obviously I only lasted a few weeks on the movie as well. But, um, but the funny thing is when I look at that movie, which is almost unwatchable, it's absolutely absolute huge, it's got everything that we talk, you know, it talks about too much of everything. <laughs> and and right,
2: historically uh, <laughs> has held up. Not uh, so great. Not though. so great in the 21st yeah, century. Yeah,
0: it's, it, it, it's held up. It, it, you, uh, it, it should be in a landfill, really.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but you know, the funny thing is, there's a couple of little sequences in the movie that I can tell were the ones that Russell directed, and they're cool, and oddly enough they, they're iconic sequences. There's a sequence where you know he's doing Lambo, sunny on a hill, and a helicopter appears. Yep. You know, just sort of comes out of the ground and appears behind him, and that's so Russell. I know that, you know, I know I can look at the movie and see some things that were absolutely Russell's standpoint, you know, and it, which leads me to believe, I absolutely do believe, that had Russell stayed on and finished that movie, he would have elevated the whole Rambo thing, you know, back to what it was at, at First Blood, which was a great movie. Definitely. Um, but, you know, and since then they just became, you know, grunt fests with people, you know. <laughs> Bigger and bigger people in arm locks, you know, so they can show up <laughs> in right. <their> biceps and, <laughs> <laughs> and with arms and legs on them. Bigger and bigger guns that you can, you know, fire in one hand and blow everything up.
2: Um, <laughs> with infinite bullets. I, I, I really think if Russell had stayed and dreaded that movie, it would have been a special movie, you know. Ted Kotcher, who did the original, And first blood, was still a
0: movie that stands up. It's still good. Definitely. As far as favorite movies, I mean, I like a lot of there's some 50s movies that I still love, like Thunder Road that, uh, with Robert Mitchum. Uh, had a big effect on
1: me as a kid. I mean, there's
0: a lot, a lot of movies that I uh, loved. I, I loved the first three James Bond movies, Dr. No, and Rush with Love and Goldfinger, I thought Right? You worked uh, on... Maybe also... Uh, yeah, maybe also Thunderball. I didn't work on any of those uh, I worked no. on sort of crappier ones but they were great fun. <laughs> I, worked on, I worked on Man with a Golden Gun and... The Who Love Me. And they were, you know, fun to work on and Roger Moore's a fabulous character. But you can still go back and watch those first three or four Bond movies and they feel like iconic almost fifties movies now, the early sixties, but they feel like great old fashioned thrillers. They're really well done. And there's another director that doesn't ever get funny. He's like the first two of them, who, who uh you know, never gets the credit. as I say, you always hear these ridiculous names of people, even Kubrick to a certain extent you hear all the time in film schools. You don't hear of the John Sturgises and the Russells. And you just don't hear of those sort of movies In you know, students don't study them. Although they'll, they'll, if you ask them, they'll definitely watch their movies. It's interesting. I love the original Professionals, which was, uh, you know, Lee Marvin and Bert Lancaster. I always thought that was a great movie that would make a great remake. But, uh, yeah, what was the other question about?
2: What, I guess, your favorite action sequence you've directed uh, was?
0: Um, it's job to say. I mean, one of the best, Action sequences that I think I've sort of put together, someone else actually directed, it, John the Happy directed it, but I designed it all and I made it all happen, it was on the last Amazing Spider-Man actually, the, the sequence of the truck going through New York, which in some ways I approached a bit like Highlander on steroids, you know, it was a much, much bigger truck and I wanted, you know, it's more cast to smash and, and I, I, I pitched the idea to Sony because the film was going to be a lot of visual effects and a lot of sort of stuff done in post-production. I sort of sold them on the idea that we should do a sequence that's, in a way, sort of old school, where it. it's a big truck. And originally, it was not written as a huge tow truck. It was an armoured car that the bad guys have stolen, and they're going through New York, smashing the and things. And, and then I came out of a hotel one day and drove around the block, and there's this huge police, actually, tow truck, you know, massive in a pool trucks. And into the producers and said he shouldn't be in the armored car. He should be in this. This is a because if you saw this in your mirror, you'd get out of the way. <laughs> you know they they went with it luckily.
2: So uh, one question it, we always ask everybody on our show is: Would you like to be immortal? And if you were immortal, what would you do?
0: I don't know. I think I think the big answer about whether you want to be immortal is: Could you reverse the situation a bit later on?
2: <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> when you got
0: bored. When you got bored with being immortal, I don't know. I guess you'd want to, especially as you get older, you know, the mortality of, you know, just life generally, I I guess, weighs on you a little bit. But I don't know. I don't think I would want to be immortal, you know. I think think even in that movie, there's a fantastic sort of underlying weariness of it. I think that would probably really happen. I think you'd become weary of everybody getting old around you and you not getting old. So I I guess the bottom line is no.
2: So if people want to follow up with you and learn more about your book where can they find that information
0: you can find it at uh, com. you can find a link to it or you can go to www.actionmoviemakershandbook.com and it's also available at amazon as well it's it's in amazon as well but it's it's cheaper if you go to the actionmoviemakershandbook.com
2: go right to the source Right, and
0: and the other thing, the other thing about the, going to the particular site is that we've made a category so that I can sign it for people and, uh, before
1: it goes out. Oh, awesome! Yeah, that's great. So that's... definitely go that route, folks.
2: Yeah, yeah. definitely. ActionMovieMakersHandbook.com. dot com, and make sure to pick up Andy Armstrong's new book if you're interested in action movies or stunt work yourself.
0: And absolutely, any, anybody really interested in the making of action movies, the the process because it's a very particular process, you know. I mean years ago people and to a certain extent now, you know, people think that anyone can do an action sequence, but it's it is a very, very particular uh you know, it's like being a dessert chef as opposed to someone that just does the you know, roast beef and cabbage. I mean it's a it's a it's a, it's a different it's a you know, it's a very particular uh mindset
2: and skill awesome well thank you so much Andy for being on the show I know I can't wait to read your book and uh, I think a lot of our listeners are going to be interested in it as well and also uh, thank you so much for contributing so much to the action genre and of course Highlander I think your your stunt work is great and I'm sure our listeners have seen your stunt work all over cinema so yeah a love of it awesome well thank you so much Andy uh, oh, no, 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 thank you I, I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. No problem. Thank, Thank you Andy. so much for awesome. giving your time. Thank you very time. much.
0: All right. Well, thanks, guys. Take care. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Actually, one one other thing I meant to tell you sure. is as aficionados of that movie that you'll probably get a kick out of is that the, one of the biggest car crashes in that chase sequence with the Kerrigan driving, is actually a complete accident. Really? And it's actually, it's actually a head-on collision between two stunt drivers. Oh. One, of the, one of the extras that I had got confused. It was like the second take, and they didn't know whether to go left or right or something, and it had a huge knock-on effect. Wow. And so there's a, there's a great moment where the Cadillac like, hits another car head-on, and then you cut to the curve and he's sort of waving his hands and laughing about it, which we did afterwards. The funny thing is that's a complete accident. And the car that he hit had a stunt car in it, but that went across the road, hit another car, and that went across the road and hit a park car, which was a which was a brand new car owned by the chief policemen that were stopping the traffic oh.
2: Oh. oh was that why he was so, so grumpy I
0: was, uh, <laughs> I was not very popular that night I'm oh sure goodness.
2: that's an amazing story and
0: it, story. Turned, it also the other, the other irony about it is it turned out that although I said to buy these two cars they'd actually bought one and rented the other one and of course the one that I'm pieces was the rental one oh. um, <laughs> but it's funny it ended up in all the teasers and things it's funny it's a great you know I've always said to people it's the cheapest big car crash I've ever done in my career <laughs>